0: Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. So what's your concept of a journalist? Is it someone who has many leather-bound books and an apartment that smells of rich mahogany, in the words of Ron Burgundy? Well, in this episode of The Long Way, our final one for Season 3, we return to the theme of news media and bias. No, we're not seeking to put a nail in the coffin of any media outlet. Rather... We'd like to look under the hood or under the bonnet, as the Brits might say, to see what's happening in the way that news is put together. A couple of
1: months ago, a a conservative staffer to a senator said to me, wow, you guys are doing an amazing job. When we're in government, I will hate you, (laughs) which is the best compliment you can ever get in Ottawa, because it means that you're just reporting the information that is useful to opposition and that governments would rather control.
0: That's Holly Doan, publisher of the news outlet Blacklock's reporter, which covers news from Parliament Hill in some pretty unique ways. Field reporter Peter Stockland will bring us Doan's comments a little later on. But first, how do members of the media differ from the general public? How are they getting comment for their stories? And how do they approach coverage of politics and dare we say, religion. For that, we turn to Professor Lydia Milgen, who's been studying these types of issues, among others, in the Political Science Department of the University of Windsor. Thank you so much for joining me on The Long Way. It's great to have you on the podcast. And I want to start off with just a general question, sort of a big picture. How healthy, in your estimation, is Canada's news media sector today, especially in terms of the breadth and depth and diversity of political news coverage? How's that for a big question? <laughs>
2: that's a that's a big one. Well, I, I'm happy to be on your show. I don't know if I can answer that question. I would say, just in sort of broad strokes, it's not very healthy. Uh, we have essentially decimated our media system. If we look at sort of the big players, right? The, newspapers, television news, etc. We have fewer journalists working on the ground. Um, We basically recycle more and more stories. And as a result, there isn't a lot of diversity of thought in sort of those big mainstream news organizations. But having said that, there certainly is a lot of diversity if you were to expand your definition to include online news and information programs, even things such as what we're doing today. I mean, there's a lot more out there, but whether or not it's accessible to the average Canadian, to the extent that traditional news has been, I would suggest that it isn't. So by that long, very winded way of saying it's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty bad right now.
0: And I, I think what's important. well, Maybe one aspect that's important in all of this is that, you know, there are, there's, a, there's podcasts like this. There are tens of thousands of podcasts like this and probably quite very, very different uh, to this one, right? There's all kinds of, of content out there. When it comes to political journalism, what I guess I would say I was used to and what I would consider normal uh, growing up in Canada would be sort of this group of people, uh, largish group, mo- mostly concentrated in Ottawa or in provincial capitals. Depends which level of politics we're talking. Um, who are professionals who've been trained, who specialize in political coverage. And I'm not suggesting that doesn't exist today, but as you say, it's a much a, it's a much smaller group. And it's the borders between what is and isn't journalism have become fuzzier, I guess. And, and maybe that's part of what's at play here. Yeah, I mean, I guess
2: it also just, that sort of focuses on what do we think of as a journalist in today's world compared to what we thought of as a, as a reporter, perhaps, in the past. So, you know, there was... Not so long ago, there, there certainly was a sort of a distinction between sort of reporting on the news and acting as a commentator about the news. And I do that. I do the latter all the time. I mean, I get on the news and people ask my opinions based on the fact that I'm a, um, an academic. I see that increasingly reporters are being asked to serve that same function, right? If you watch sort of the the cable news networks, power and politics, um, power play, they have segments where you, you know, it's very routinized. You have segments where you have the, the political players and obviously they're going to come from it from their perspective. And then you t- sometimes have sort of academics like myself thrown in, but there's a larger section of those shows that focus on journalist opinions. So it's journalists explicitly giving their take on the day's news. And why would we say that their opinions are worth more than someone else's? Well, perhaps because they have some insider knowledge and they talk to people. But if you watch those shows on a regular basis, No, you're just getting their point of view based on the fact of their education where they live. And, you know, when I talk to friends across the country, especially those in Western Canada, they are increasingly frustrated with national news media in this country. The fact that, you know, the federal government almost gets a pass on a pathetic rollout, quite frankly, of vaccines. I and mean, we are all, you know, I, I think a lot of us are still sitting in envy when we see our neighbours to the south having all sorts of restrictions loosened. We're still in lockdowns um, in number of provinces in this country because we can't get access to vaccines. And yet you don't see the media attacking the prime minister or the health minister. But you do see those same journalists attack the premiers of provinces where you have conservative governments, and specifically in Ontario and Alberta. I mean, it is relentless saying, oh, they blew it, they blew it, they blew it. And when they say, well, wait a minute, we need supply of vaccines. That's why we can't open up or we don't control the borders. Why are you letting plane loads of people infected with COVID come into the borders? That's almost sloughed off. Like, Oh, they're just, you know, they're, they're just trying to, to um, distract from their incompetence of the rollout of the vaccines. So that kind of uh, playing favorites, I guess, as we see that a lot with sort of the national press corps is, is frustrating for a lot of people. Uh, but I think especially those in Western Canada.
0: I want to delve into a little bit the 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 bias issue that you're that you're pointing to. And throughout this the sort of the latest group, I guess, season of podcast episodes uh, that we've done, we've looked at the media in almost kind of like every other episode, which I, I find interesting, not just because I was a journalist at one point in time, but also, because it just keeps coming up. It just keeps, you know, it's 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 a constantly relevant subject. Because, I mean, in my estimation, you need to have a healthy media ecosystem as part of a as part of a healthy society, flourishing society. So, I mean, I wonder if you could just, as an academic, if you could give me some kind of idea or some kind of estimate of how can we measure, look at, quantify in, in some way the, the bias that is in Canadian media? How bad is it really? Because I know that you've written about this before. It's, it, it's, a, it's a book dating back to the 90s now, Hidden Agendas, uh, which you co-wrote with uh, Professor Barry Cooper from the University of Calgary. And you did look at specifically the Parliamentary Press Gallery at that time in the early 90s, if memory serves, and came to certain conclusions about their ideological beliefs, their sort of their religious stance on issues and how that differs from the general population. Well, Canada has changed since then. The Parliamentary Press Corps has changed uh, since then. So if you were going to do that kind of evaluation today, how might you approach that? And, and what does your intuition tells you tell you about how things are today?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, the methodology is actually quite uh, simple, and it's, it's, it, it, it's not that technical, it's just labor-intensive. What I didn't just do the National Press Corps, I did the national media. So I looked at um, newspapers and television and radio journalists across the country. So essentially what we did, we did a survey of, of journalists, and then simultaneously we did a survey of general population Canadians, and then we compared their responses. And so, you know, the, the survey, the, the study was done in 96, I think it was published in 2004. Um, and effectively what we were able to show is that the media were much more progressive than were general population Canadians. So they were, they were much more open to same sex rights, which was very contentious at the time. They were much more supportive of indigenous um, issues, much more supportive of a, of a progressive agenda. And we argued that they were leading public opinion towards that direction. Um, and, and, pretty much the last 20 years have borne that out. Um, Canadians in general were more religious than the journalists, more likely to be married in intact families and have children. Journalists were more likely to, you know, when we asked, we asked stuff, you know, even things like, you know, drinking, you know, so they still, they didn't have that sort of that cliche, hard drinking kind of personality, but they tended to drink a little bit more than general population. But I never, I don't put too much weight onto those kinds of questions. And then the Second thing we did was like, so we mapped sort of what, the journalists' ideological positions were and who they voted for. And we found that CBC journalists, for example, were much more likely to say that they voted for the NDP in the, in the the 96 election than were private sector journalists, as an example, or the general population. And then, anyway, we took that information and then what we did was looked at a number of, of issues, um, social issues, economic issues, and we wanted to see whether or not the way the news was reported reflected Canadians' perspectives in general or reflected the ideological positions of the journalists. And what we found was that they were quite closer to the journalist's perspective. So the journalists were, what we argue is that the journalists, when they're putting together a story, it's not random and it's not just what's out there. They have a narrative and they um, either consciously or unconsciously try to, as we all do, sort of reinforce their own beliefs. And so the best example I had was, and this seems so 1990s kind of a debate, but at, at that time there was a, a, a quasi debate about whether or not there's a trade-off between inflation and employment. And sort of the conventional wisdom that was that if you want high employment, you've got to have the trade-off is high inflation. When you talked to economists at the time there was a survey that came out that asked economists you know is there a trade off like 95% of economists said no there's no trade off you can have low inflation and high employment when we asked that of journalists they said the reverse they thought it was the reverse and so when we looked at how economic issues were reported especially the, that that trade off what they did even though they were citing academics and they were interviewing academics they disproportionately interviewed the academics that five percent that thought that there was a trade-off as opposed to the majority who knew that there wasn't so that's an example of how the news is constructed and how it's manufactured towards a particular narrative and we get that all the time right now right I mean because there's so much fewer journalists out there we are just bombarded you know the news cycle right now is basically three stories you've got COVID you've got um, Black Lives Matter um, I'm trying to think of what a third story would be we sprinkled in with a little bit of actually news that's happening in the world uh, so sometimes we get glimpses of the rest of the world but on any given night, I mean, last night was an example. When I watched the news, we got the COVID numbers and we got Black Lives Matter because it was the, joy, the anniversary of George Floyd. Um, and that dominated the the news cycle for yesterday. But it's also dominated the news cycle for the year.
0: It's always difficult with these sorts of issues and questions, uh, because when you talk about media bias, I, I mean, I've been in, in, in personal conversations where you know, feelings tend to run hot, depending on where you stand on the issue. And depending on whether you liked the media coverage or didn't like the media coverage or this media is okay and that media outlet right. is not, you know these these conversations can get very heated. But I think what I found perhaps most useful uh, and most practical about the research that you just unpacked for us is that there was, there was a measurement, and you had something to uh, to compare against. It wasn't an intuitive uh, response. I mean, it couldn't have been an academic work and been an intuitive response, frankly. And I, I think that's just what I find especially useful in a in a in a conversation like this, which is why I I would love it if there were some kind of study like that done today. I, I think the results would be very interesting. I don't know what you think.
2: Yeah, and I've always, I I have sort of toyed with the idea of redoing it. Part of my hesitation is how would I get the journalist to answer the survey, and where would I find the journalist to answer the survey? it almost have to be a, a qualitative study rather than a quantitative one, which is what I did. I mean, certainly the, the content analysis is pretty straightforward. I look at usually a year's coverage, I look at every single story, and we count. We basically count how many times was somebody pro or con a specific issue, how many times was it just a neutral statement of fact, we look at sort of who was interviewed Viewed, um, what their credentials were that kind of thing so that the sort of the content analysis part of it again is labor intensive but it's it's pretty standard and and you can get some decent numbers that the real difficult thing right now well, well there's a couple things one is as I said finding the journalist to to do the survey but the other part is what media do I choose because um, lately when I've tried to publish research that's looked at sort of National news media and national television, which is tended, which is what I tended to focus on. I've been criticized for not looking at, you know, social media by not looking at Twitter, by not looking at Facebook, and then that becomes overwhelming, right? Because the the thing about social media is that we're not looking then at journalists. We're looking at retweets. We're looking at, you know, just sort of that cesspool of negativity. Which I'm quite frankly just I don't think I could stomach doing that kind of analysis. So that's sort of where I've been having difficulty trying to replicate that study. And maybe what I would do is, is like I said, maybe just do some um, qualitative surveys with, with select journalists and then um, look at the news content, just given our sample sizes of journalists are so low.
0: I wonder if you might comment as well about how media in Canada, especially sort of political media at whatever level, handle uh news stories and have handled say in recent years news stories that have to do with and that touch on religious issues and i don't mean specifically just to deal with um you know sort of the christianity which yeah i get is the sort of the majority religion at least by tradition in canada but i mean all kinds of of religious issues Do you get a sense just from from watching and from your observation that there is an appropriate level of sensitivity or understanding or even, dare dare I say, nuance in the way journalists reflect how religion and politics sometimes intersect in Canada?
2: Yeah, I don't see, I mean, I don't really see a lot of coverage about religion and politics in Canada. And certainly I am sort of concerned about the fact that it seems that the only types of religions that get a fair hearing are ones that are not the dominant, not the dominant Christian or Judeo. That, is, that essentially the Islamic religion, if it's if, if religion is going to be discussed, it's going to be discussed about uh, Islam and it's about debates, you know, verse, debates on sort of cultural um, issues, you know, whether women can wear headscarves and things like that. And that really, and again, this might just be a knee jerk because I come from the Judeo-Christian, but it just seems that uh, the only religion right now that's offered a fair hearing in the news media would be Islamic or uh, even new age spirituality as opposed to Judeo-Christian traditions.
0: Why do you think that is? What I, you know, I, I observe the news. I, I tend to read more than watch more news. It's just my personal thing. Um, And I see kind of, you know, coverage on, on, on various things and I also read the, the complaints of various groups. I think you'd find plenty of Muslims who say they are not adequately uh, represented or or their views are not adequately reported on or fairly reported on uh, in the media. But you also hear that from, from Christian groups and sort of from the Judeo-Christian side. What do you think that is, though? What, what, what might be behind kind of just... That approach to to covering sort of that intersection of religion and politics, the few times that it does happen.
2: Yeah, well, I think because usually when it happens, there's a conflict involved, and so you know, <laughs> either side of the conflict is going to feel that they've been badly uh, treated. I mean, I, I, and I agree that Muslims would have have a, a legitimate beef with the media simply because of not just the news, but also popular cultural depictions of their faith are strongly associated with terrorism, even though you know, the vast majority of Muslims are not terrorists and have never even contemplated any kind of terrorist act. That's sort of the stereotype that's come through um, mass media. And again, it's not just um, the news, it's sort of the cultural uh, storytelling that we get. And, you know, likewise, Christians get upset that the only time they get on the news is if there's a priest that's done something egregious, um, and the list can go on. So, I mean, we have to remember that the news is focused a lot on negativity. It's not on actually what's happening in the world. It's what's bad that's happening in the world. And so everyone will feel that if their group is, Reflected in a bad news story that it reflects badly on their faith. I think that's sort of a general thing. Um, and, and, and again, when we go back to sort of what journalists believe, you know, a lot of journalists um, aren't churchgoers, ha- don't ascribe to any political, uh, any faith, um, and so they they treat religion as something that is um, archaic, that's quaint, and and they disregard things that are based on sort even, even if you look at indigenous knowledge, sort of traditional based knowledge doesn't get the same kind of hearing as sort of the buzzwords of, you know, um, science-based evidence that we get a lot of from the federal government. And I think also um, the news media are taking a lot of their cues from the current liberal government. They, they certainly have very similar values and aspirations. And so, Similarly, you know, if you look at Justin Trudeau's speeches, he um, is highly politically correct, but he tends to uh, focus a lot more on the lesser dominant religious face. even though he, you know, was brought up a Catholic, you wouldn't get that sense of his Catholicism from the way he speaks, and especially the way he responds to uh, rel- various religious groups in the country.
0: And just to sort of as a, as a final question, would you point to any particular direction measure uh, anything like that that you think would help steer things in a better direction in um, in a healthier direction as far as you know a more more balanced reporting or just perhaps better understanding of issues like religion insofar as, they have anything to do with political or other kinds of reporting?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the biggest problem is resources. And sort of I alluded to that at the beginning. You know, I noticed that sort of in a lot of the news, like, so just full disclosure, I do a lot of... Uh, hits with CTV news, right? Their news channel. And sometimes I'm called on almost, sometimes I feel like they're calling me on almost as a reporter. Like there's fast breaking news and they want a reaction. Um, And so you go on for like a five, six minute spot, but I'm like tail ended with, with an actual journalist in a lot of those things. And in a sense they're using, different academics which I think is not necessarily a bad thing to sort of fill in the gaps where they really just don't have people on the ground to do the reporting and so you see a lot of people like myself sort of on these national news channels sort of doing these either they sometimes they'll call them a panel debate but really it's usually just a one-on-one with the reporter Um, and that's sort of been one way that they've been able to augment their coverage. But, you know, I'm glad that at least they'll come to someone like me uh, as much as they will with any of my other colleagues, because they are going to get different points of view, different perspectives. So I would hope that they would do that with sort of a A broader section of society not necessarily just us pointy-headed academics but get people from the faith community or people from other groups and and with differing points of view don't always go to sort of the same person time after time you know find other sources but again that all depends on resources on the ground we know that their budgets are stretched they only have so many people who can even do the you know the 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 production work behind the scenes to actually find people to get on these these uh, stories and on these programs.
0: Yeah, I, I can just tell you from my own personal experience uh, as a as a journalist, when you are under time pressure and you've got a deadline to meet, you want to make the fewest calls, send out the fewest number of emails necessary to get the feedback, comment, clip, whatever it is that you need to complete your story and get it out uh, on time and that process pushes you to it pushes you to go i uh, get perhaps take the path of least resistance go to the folks you know the folks you know answer the phone the folks you know who respond and maybe that does lead you to more of the same people than than perhaps it should have but and that's not an excuse but I think it's an explanation for perhaps why we get what we get and uh, the need to at least aspire to something better.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. I mean, and I know that that's certainly been my experience. I get on the news because I answer the phone. <laughs> I don't think they're looking for my my necessarily my point of view. I think that they're just thinking, OK, Miljen, Yep. She know we know she's usually around and she's you know ready to go on air at a moment's notice um, and and. So the real job of of sort of a, a chase producer, I think is what they're called, is to, when they're not under constraint, to start building a better repertoire of people that they could go to and try to find different sources. And we've seen that. At the beginning of, of the COVID pandemic, you know, they started to get some doctors on and then now they've got a stable of doctors that they always go to for their uh, commentary. And, you know, when COVID passes, they'll go to other people for other issues. Uh, but it is a it's always been a challenge. And it's it certainly is the nature of and what we saw and sort of in that in my other conversation about news being produced is that they choose the experts, right? We call them authorized knowers um, and they decide who is someone who is going to be um, someone that they will promote as someone who has knowledge about these. And then there's other groups in the background, right? There's all sorts of um, advocacy groups out there that try to get their experts on these different programs and they do it um, through either their op-eds or, you know, direct contact with them. So there's, it's, 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 it comes on both sides, right? So people who feel that their point of view isn't being perspective, presented in the news have got to make themselves available so that the
0: media can pick them up as well. True enough. And I will say you were pretty easy to book for this podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for that. That was good.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I'm home all the time now. So <laughs> it's easy <laughs> to catch me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess COVID is good for broadcasters and for podcasters, I should say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Professor Lydia Milgen, thank you so much for your time and for your perspectives on this. It's certainly been interesting, and uh, all the best to you.
2: My pleasure. Nice talking to you.
0: We interrupt this podcast to bring you some breaking news. Well, not really. But for some who fulminate about media bias, it might seem that way when they hear a somewhat different interpretation—
3: Here's field reporter Peter Stockland with more on that. The great age of misinformation and fake news has also produced the indelible image of unabashedly biased journalists convinced their job is to trot out their preferred woke tropes to audiences desperately in need of political re-education. Holly Doan doesn't buy the bias bit. The publisher of Blacklock's Reporter, Ottawa's web-based news service built on old-school journalistic deep digging, says the besetting problem in contemporary media isn't overt manipulation. It's incapacity in both resources and training. People quickly
1: reach for partisanship uh, as an excuse to blame reporters for not doing the jobs or the stories or filling those niches. The problem here is a consolidation of editing. So in the old days, reporters had a beat. If you covered the courts, you got to know the police and the lawyers and the court clerks and you started to learn things. So you could tell the desk, maybe it was in Edmonton, maybe it was in Toronto, what the story was based on your knowledge. Now, with those jobs missing and that experience missing, assignment desks, most of them in Toronto, tell the reporter sitting in a satellite office, what the story is. Well, wait, how does an editor sitting in Toronto tell someone what the story is at the Commons Public Accounts Committee? They can't, but they can tell the reporter that their prime minister is visiting a Tim Hortons today. Well, because the news release said. So every desk across the country is doing the same thing. And uniformity equals mediocrity.
3: Doan and managing editor Tom Korsky, both with decades under their belts as working reporters, started Blacklocks as a subscription news service nine years ago, when they saw a gaping specialty niche had opened for the kind of reportage that used to be standard fare in the Parliamentary Press Gallery-reading the fine print of bills and regulations, babysitting Parliamentary committees, going green shade on the public accounts and far back pages of voluminous federal budgets. That, they've subsequently proven, is where the scoops are, which they regularly churn out without fear or favor to any political party.
1: A couple of months ago, a, uh, a conservative staffer to a senator said to me, wow, you guys are doing an amazing job. When we're in government, I will hate you. which is the best compliment you can ever get in Ottawa, because it means that you're just reporting the information that is useful to opposition and that governments would rather control.
3: It's also, the former CTV Beijing bureau chief says, where the customers are. One-time mass media news consumers have now become specialty subscription clients, who want raw information distilled as pure reporting without added opinions or artificial political flavors of the day, week, or month. In fact, Doan says, that's where mass media big mockers went so wrong in chasing down and accepting hundreds of millions of dollars in federal government subsidies to keep their journalistic enterprises afloat.
1: The media bailout is the elephant in the room. Subsidies, media subsidies, camouflage ineptitude. And media subsidies, as other people smarter than me have said, uh, like Andrew Coyne, that they will only prolong the painful discovery of who is in the market that can reform, that can reinvent themselves, that, that can make money. Uh, and subsidies will always keep that information from us. So how do we fix it? Well, if A newspaper, and I just pick one at random, the Winnipeg Free Press, let's say, if it died tomorrow, there would be three websites that would rush to take its place, to to tell citizens what's happening at City Hall. And that the industry might eventually revert to its pre-war heyday where there were many voices.
3: They doubled down, she says, by hiring bright young journalism grads from various universities who get thrown into senior reporting roles with the talent, but not the skills or experience to effectively report on the various narratives being peddled by all parties, left, right, and center.
1: But if I didn't know how to cover um, a public accounts committee, I wouldn't know what to write either. I would be reaching for narratives because I got a file today. Let's take Bill C-10. Bill C-10 is the internet regulation bill that has caught some headlines recently. Blacklocks was the first to report it for weeks, months actually. There was a problem with Bill C-10 and they had exempted, originally exempted YouTube uploads and then took that out. That the early coverage of C-10 said, well, he says this, the minister Jibo says this, uh, the artist artistic community says this. The ex-CRTC chairman says that. The um, uh, independent producers say this. It appeared to me that the reporters had not actually read the bill, that no one had read C-10. If they had, they would have been quoting from it. They would have been making references to it. You wouldn't have to say, he said, she said. You could just quote from the bill. Could it be because they have lost the skills to find new information. Just, just tell people what the bill said. Just tell people what, what's happened. My analogy is this, and I, I can't overstate it. You know, when, when Chairman Mao took control after, <laughs> after the Chinese Revolution, uh, by 1976, he, 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 he killed all the, all the tailors because they were bad class background merchants. And by 1976, nobody in China could cut a suit and so everybody looked like hell because there were no tailors who knew how to do it. This is the same with the media industry. They reach for narratives because they no longer know how to seek basic information and no one's telling them to.
3: Increasingly, Doan says, Canadians aren't buying that. But the solution certainly isn't more big media subsidies. Nor is it make-a-wish dreams for big media companies to write their own errors. The future, she says, is a proliferation of highly professional small journalistic operations like, well, Blacklock's Reporter, focused on the information and news that customers want and need. For the long way, I'm Peter Stockland.
0: Thanks for that, Peter. Seems the news business just ain't what it used to be. This entire conversation has reminded me, or maybe just underlined, that we really can't have a flourishing society without a well-functioning media ecosystem. Now, we haven't got all the answers, and perhaps we've raised more questions than we've answered. But that's okay if maybe we can edge a little closer to expecting better from our news media without just deciding that the whole lot is useless. As usual, the reality is more complicated than that. By the way, you will have heard Holly Doan refer to Bill C-10 and Andrew Coyne in Peter's Field Report. Check out Season 3, Episode 7 of The Long Way with Michael Geist for more on Bill C-10 and free speech questions. We've got an entire episode focused on that. And also check out Episode 1 of Season 3 for a full feature interview with Globe and Mail columnist Andrew Coyne for a different look at media bias. Well, that about does it for Season 3. I've appreciated your listening, and I've had fun putting these episodes together. Thank you to Peter Stockland as well for his contributions and field reports. And don't forget to like and comment on this episode wherever you're hearing it. As well, follow or subscribe to The Long Way so that you'll know right away when our new episodes are ready. For The Long Way and the team at Cardis, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Stay classy, everyone.